1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson.
2: And I'm Krista Braun, a producer with CNBC Events.
1: And on this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, from interviews we recorded in front of a live audience uh, around the country. Today, a conversation with one of the most interesting people, Krista, in publishing, Mark Thompson. He is the CEO of The New York Times. He joined us at our Evolve conference in New York City in June of 2019, and uh, he really is an interesting guy who has done what many people thought, Krista, was the impossible.
2: Well, we've seen hundreds of newspapers fold in the last decade as customers have moved from online news sources, but The New York Times, they successfully transformed into digital in a way that some of their competitors hadn't.
1: Yeah, and they've they've got a friend who is also an enemy in the White House, Donald they, Trump.
2: They do. And I
1: think Mark Thompson would say, as he, I think he did in this conversation, uh, that uh, the fascination with Donald Trump has helped their subscriptions.
2: It, it, it has. Uh, it certainly has presented them also with a challenge in, in how do they deal with it, how do they respond to it, How do, but then how do they keep doing what they do best, which is delivering accurate reporting, accurate news. In fact, Tyler, the week that he joined us on stage, uh, the president had tweeted that the New York Times was guilty of treason. So Mark came into the backstage and was chatting with us, and he said... Well, I don't think the week could get any worse. <laughs> no, absolutely.
1: The other thing he did that has, that raised a lot of suspicions in the in the in the world of digital publishing is he created a paywall uh, for the digital product. Now, if you subscribe to the print product, you you generally get, as I understand it, the the digital access for free. I do that. I get a home subscription. I'm an old dinosaur. I still get the Times and the journal delivered to my door. Uh, but but the payroll wall has actually worked for the Times.
2: It has. And at the time that they implemented that, a lot of people said that it would hurt them, that people wouldn't pay for the news when they could get it elsewhere for free. But it it, it hasn't put them out of business. In fact, it's done very well for them. And uh, they now, I think, it's they've got about... 5 million subscribers between print and digital.
1: And he says he's going to double that by 2025. I'll give you a little hint here. There's a very interesting feature on the homepage of their website. There's a little place that says Today's Paper. If you click on it, you get everything that was in Today's Paper as opposed to just what's been curated for the website. Shall we get to our conversation with Mark Thompson, I think we should. He was uh, interviewed on stage by our colleague, Sarah Eisen.
3: So we're here to talk about your leadership and... In preparation for this, I went back and I looked at the stock price, and I looked at some of the news reports. So third, I'll just paint the picture for you. Third quarter, 2012, I think ad revenue declined in the corner 9%. Net income was down like 80%, 88% from the year before. The dividend was scrapped. The stock price fell 22% on the earnings news. And then New York Times names a new CEO. So why did you take the job? You came from BBC. Yeah, why was so, it time I, for you? Well,
4: I mean, look, I mean, many people here will have had this experience of a headhunter calling and about you know some job, and I, it was one of those calls where I thought I, I can get to know really quickly, you know, and, and I did. I said I, I don't think it's for me. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm uh, you know I'm not an American. I've not worked in, in newspapers before. Um, I spent about a week thinking about it, and I, I was a digital subscriber to the New York Times. I, I, I loved the New York Times. I'd loved it for years. The moment it became possible to see it on the web in the 90s, I, I started looking at it every day, and then I became a digital subscriber. And the thing that kept me from... kind of kept on occurring to me in that week was... The potential of this thing, it's, it's kind of the best journalism anywhere, really. And I was running, by the way, I was the editor-in-chief of the, of the, New York, of, of the BBC at this point. You know, it's, it's, it's probably the single most trusted news brand in the world, is the BBC. So, I mean, and, and I was, I'm a journalist by training. I, I, and I thought The Times is unique. And it's kind of under... It's just completely that reputation, that quality is completely underleveraged. And I had a, some friends working at The Times, and I know a lot, know a lot of other people in New York, and very strongly, the majority opinion for my friends is don't touch it with a barge pole. <laughs> they're, they're Newspapers br- are dead. And specifically at the Times, that, that they're completely brilliant people. It's, they're incredibly talented people. You'll just never... It's, it's a block of concrete. You'll never move it. It's so set in its ways. It's so, um, it's so um, kind of fixed in its traditions. You'll, you know, it's, it's the most conservative of all American media organisations. You won't shift it. But then I thought, actually, one or two people said to me, you know, it's really quite interesting. Uh, Nobody's really had a go with it yet, and you could do some really interesting things with it. And then I started meeting the family Mm -hmm. who've got the controlling interest, and I met some independent directors. And I honestly came to believe they really meant it when they they talked about change. Everyone in media talks about change all the time and innovation, how much they love it, how, how much they want to promote it. Almost everyone's lying about that. Or and maybe, li- <laughs> maybe lying to themselves. They don't mean it. They don't really. They actually are they're kind of thinking, you know, God, maybe I can sit this out. Maybe the, the wind will change. You know, maybe, you know, we got, a few young you people know the, the upfronts went really well. We're going to be fine, sort of thing. It, it, these mm-hmm. guys had looked over the precipice in 2008, mm-hmm. 9 They got into a kind of liquidity crisis, very nearly a cardiac arrest for the company. And they. I thought they really meant it, and so that my bet was a bit like a, it's very like being a, like a, a contrarian uh, investor. My bet was actually there's something we can do here, and honestly, I would say very quickly. Although it's taken us a long time to do everything we've done so far, and there's plenty more to do. Um, that was proven out, and I felt when I got there, although there were plenty of kind of forces of conservatism, there was also a real groundswell of impatience to get on with the future.
1: Still ahead on the keynote, Mark Thompson turned around the New York Times by doing the opposite of what everyone else in the industry was doing. Stay with us.
4: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose
3: Canva Magic Write, it works fast
2: Welcome back to the keynote by CNBC Events. You're listening to a conversation with New York Times CEO Mark Thompson. He sat down with Sarah Eisen at CNBC's Evolve Conference in June 2019.
3: How do you take a business with such a rich history, such a tradition, such a valuable um, brand and business that is declining and turn it toward the future?
4: Well, don't you think... I mean, to me, it's, it's like, what do, what do you keep and what do you cherish? And what do you change? And you've got to be quite clear about that. And I think the organisation has got... It's got to be true, and the organisation has got to believe that you share the passion and conviction about the quality of the journalism. And one of the things it became, I think, clear to people very quickly is I, I, not only did I believe in trying to maintain our newsroom where possible, we would invest in it. Um, I mean, our model is a very simple one, which is we should invest in great content um, and uh, uh, the future of journalism, if you want a great future, like make more journalism, do more and better journalism, and then figure out smart ways of putting that in front of people and asking them to contribute to support that journalism. And this model, which is the same model, by the way, as Netflix, is like the opposite of what most people in our, our industry were doing. We're thinking basically, this is like a cost-cutting thing. As long as we chop our costs, maybe we can get, remain profitable. To me, the risk of a of a downward spiral of falling quality, falling audiences, falling revenue, is completely obvious. It's for some reason not been obvious to, to many of our uh, of our competitors. But so once you convince people that you really believe in the in the fundamentals of the product and the values. Then you earn permission to start talking about the, those things where you do need to make changes. And, you know, simple thing, in 2012, if you had gone into the newsroom at 7 o'clock in the morning, you'd have found four or five guys with vacuum cleaners. That was the dead part of the 24-hour cycle for a physical newspaper. 7 o'clock in the morning is the peak time for smartphone consumption. That's the most important time to be current, to be fresh, to have new things to put in front of the audience. And so instead of thinking print product uh, out of which you get a a desktop website, out of which you get, by the way, in those days with an RSS feed, um, a a smartphone app, you need to think of a news report which is aimed at delivering the best possible smartphone news in the world, out of which you can get a website and out of which you can then curate a physical newspaper. That's I mean, quite a big change, yeah but it 's not a change to the idea you 've got to do the best, most serious journalism in the world that 's the bit they really cared about. It seems and like right. you did
3: a two pronged approach you, you changed you had a strategic transformation mm. and you had a cultural transformation. Yeah. What was that like and, and which is harder
4: and the strategic transformation. Uh, i, I 've I've been, I've been a, a chief executive for eighteen years now. God help me um, and one of the things i 've learned is the trick is not to try and come up with a strategy and like impose it on an organization. The trick is to encourage and cajole and, and help the organization come up with its strategy. So you kind, of, you kind of pull the strategy out of the organization. So you get, you get your colleagues to come up with a strategy. And, and so because they come up with it, it's their strategy. They own it. Um, trying to impose a strategy or trying to get... Um, uh, uh, a group of uh, external consultants to come in and kind of give you a strategy which you then kind of email to everyone. It's just not owned. So to me, the first thing, I think the, the, the strategy-making process and the cultural change were the same thing, which is really, it's like we're going to sit down and we're going to have an open-ended in, honest inquiry about what's going on and what we need to do, and you're going to help with that. You're going to be part of that. And out of that, we're going to start coming up with ideas um, about what, what we should do differently. And they did that. And I would say, you know, the the, the, strategy, the New York Times strategy has come out of its newsroom. It's come out of its marketing department. It, it, it's, it's been kind of organic. And because of that, you get enough people who believe in it that you can do it. The real problem many media organisations have is you've got, like, theoretically a great strategy, but it doesn't really feel owned by the organisation and is therefore essentially impossible to implement, especially because um, modern digital media requires massive integration of different disciplines. And trying to do that with a legacy media organisation which is very strongly silo-based and where all previous strategies have been silo-specific strategies, it's incomprehensible to people on the ground. And the, the thing has to be played out. The actual operational decisions end up being cross-divisional decisions, being taken on the ground far away from the C-suite. And if those guys don't feel part of what's being thought about up here, it just doesn't happen. It cries, It's like the, the gears just don't have the oil and just can't move against each other.
3: So how would you describe what, what came out of those meetings and what came out of those brainstorm sessions? I'll and
4: give you a couple of uh, simple examples. We, we're a, we're a, we're a subscription-first business. Um, we, de- we said we're going to focus mainly on building our digital subscription business. Now, initially, in the room, senior people, the head of advertising, she's now the chief operating officer, Levin, said, you can't say that. What am I to, How am I going to tell my my colleagues in advertising that you know they're chopped chicken liver that, that you know that, that this is that they no longer count? Um, we we said advertising is going to be an important but secondary hmm. revenue opportunity for us. It was so helpful to say to everyone we're going to build a digital subscription business that we're going to do other new products we're going to do podcasting we're going to do tv we're going to still have a great advertising product and by the way we're going to transform advertising as well but that's a simple idea we said we're going to be a destination at a point 2015 where everyone else was saying or many people were saying it doesn't matter whether you've got your own assets on your own destination you can be on you can be on you know you can be on facebook the facebook news feed is fine we said, no, for us, we want to be a place people come and find us. We want to be a daily habit. That's not a new idea. The physical paper has always been a daily habit for its, its, its really committed uh, users. We said we need the same thing, that same sense of indispensability day in, day out with a physical product. So we came up with a single sheet of paper with probably six ideas on it. Each one of them is a really important idea which points to a change or to the rediscovery of some eternal truth about the times, which is really relevant on the smartphone.
3: Well, it's an interesting strategy because I feel like a lot of media companies are going digital. They have Mm. digital departments. They have digital people. But when the bulk of their revenue still comes from traditional media advertising, that's where the focus of the business is going to be. So one
4: of the first things I did when I got there was I created a print products and services division. And a little bit later, we, we, we set up a print hub in the newsroom. So that's the opposite signal. It says, we're gonna have a group of specialists who are gonna run our print platform. Deep muscle memory, fantastic professionalism, and they do have significantly a cost-cutting efficiency agenda. We wanna drive contribution margin out of that wonderful platform for as long as possible, but it's a mature platform. It's not gonna be with us forever. We need to build the future. So what we did is we isolated the existing business and said, let's these guys get on, get, get on with that over here, the equivalent, you know, of course, in, in TV would be um, the current cable operations and the revenue which comes from subs and advertising. And you say, let's contain that over here so that most of the brain space of the organization is focused on, on, on products and revenue which are currently a small percentage of the total but are essentially... Most of, or possibly all of is our future. Hmm?
3: Is anyone doing that?
4: Very few people. That, that, that's a move. I don't know why, because it's kind of obvious. <laughs> and the thing about a mature platform is it doesn't need much running, actually. Uh, and there's a kind of mythology about how, how much effort and brain space it takes to run a mature platform. The whole point about a mature platform is it's mature. You really understand it. It's pretty efficient at what it does. It may well face secular pressures, but you can just run it over here. And and what you mustn't do is pretend to yourself. It requires enormous strategic energy. It's futile trying to pour enormous amounts of energy into what what is essentially a mature business.
3: And then taking a step further, how did you utilize the data that you were getting from the subscriptions to really leverage... Those subscriptions and the digital ad business.
4: Yeah, and by the way, in print, I mean we weren't using digital techniques sufficiently in terms of our print platform. The print, the print platform. I mean, yeah, the print. Our printing plant is significantly a digital plant, and a uh, 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 digital, a um, um, uh, data about um, audiences are just as relevant in the print tonight. We use machine learning to figure out how many copies of the New York Times to put in Starbucks branches to try and reduce the wastage of, of copies, which is the, what's the optimal number per, per Starbucks around, around the United States, for example. Um, well, I would say that we have got progressively better. I mean, the, the, w- w- you know, when I arrived, the, 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 the handling of data at the Times was like a kind of, you know, opening a kind of kind of Victorian cabinet of, of kind of ancient legacy systems and all the rest of it. we figured out the the architecture and the, and the data engineering now. We've got a lot of, you know, both effective and broadly spread, a large number of data analysts, but we've also got some high-end data scientists um, working, working on all of that. It's becoming more useful, but I want to say as well, we're also now in a process of really trying to figure out what parts of data about your consumption of the times do we really need and what don't we need? So can we reduce to a minimum, for example, the amount of information about you that's leaving our building to the absolute minimum to run the business? And, and secondly, can we be more transparent with you about, about, about you know, what's happening in terms of your interactions with the times and the data? And I think, again, I would say that our industry has got very used to spraying user data around as if it didn't really matter mm. and the, the world's regulators are, going, are in the process of changing that yeah. and again this is going to fundamentally the appalling um kind of cesspool cesspit cesspool uh, uh different on different sides of the atlantic that that kind of, of 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 that of of digital advertising the kind of you know terrible the kind of sea of dodgy um Targeting. intermediary companies and targeting in so-called segments, some of which don't really work, you know, all of that nonsense which has sprung up in the open market programmatic
1: world particularly, is going to have to end. I mean, it's hopeless. It's not really defensible either. Still ahead on the keynote, how much of an impact does President Trump have on the Times subscriptions? Stay with us.
0: Justin and so good.
2: Welcome back to the keynote by CNBC Events. You're listening to a conversation with New York Times CEO Mark Thompson. He sat down with Sarah Eisen at CNBC's Evolve conference in June 2019. So let me ask you this. Is the president a distraction for you
3: when it comes to these strategies and doing your business? He he tweets and mentions the New York Times constantly.
4: Yeah, so, and, and just to, to, just for one moment to be serious about the, about the treason thing, the president accuses us of treason at the weekend over a, a story about um, U.S. efforts to um, uh, to get a capability to interfere with the um, infrastructure of, 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 of Russia. Russians. Um, essentially, our story said as a deterrent to try and dissuade the Russians from from messing up infrastructure in this country. Um, it's a story where the, the Times had contacted in advance the, the, the defense authorities um, the, um, I, I in the administration to, to ask the question, are there any um, national security um, interests at stake here? Is anything something we should need to know? Is something you'd like us not to publish? And we were told they had no concerns at all, and we published, and the president then accused us of treason. Well, um, he
3: had to one-up the enemy of the people.
4: Well, and, and I think... Our publisher um, Arthur Greg Salzberger has said that twice. He's had two public meetings, uh, two meetings with the with, with, the, with the president um, it, um, uh, in the last twelve months, and has both times called the president out for um, words. That's what they are. Their words, but rhetoric, which is dangerous, because in the end, calling journal- journalists traitors or calling them enemies of the people is inevitably going to increase the risk of. Um, violence and hostility towards journalists, and it's irresponsible, and it shouldn't, he shouldn't do it. Um, the president's entirely entitled to uh, not like everything, everything he reads in the New York Times. Get that. He's got every right to say he doesn't like the way we cover him or cover anything else. So this is not saying we shouldn't be criticized, but actually isolating journalists as a group, not just at the Times but the whole industry, is, is a really, frankly, hostile stupid, but also dangerous thing to do. Uh, And the treason charge, read the Constitution, it's absurd. Treason is a crime in the United States, only uh, applicable essentially in times of war against actually official enemies of the United States. So it's an absurd charge, but it is a dangerous further escalation in the language.
3: Open it up for questions. We have a mic coming to you.
1: Hi. Um, so you mentioned that in the industry there's been a lot of data strewn about over the years and I, you folks are getting sort of better and more strategic about what data from users matters. Um, can you give us some sense of what, what you found or what you believe about what types of data matter and can be used responsibly versus those that are not? Particularly now in this sort of era where Facebook is getting a lot of criticism.
4: Yeah. So I, I think the big thing we feel that is, is that we I think oh, we're not alone in this have, have done nothing like enough to, um, to, to extract the most value out of, as it were, first party data. Uh, we publish 200 stories um, uh, a, a day, thereabouts. We have 140 million uh, 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 unit users a, a, a month. We have a wealth of information uh, um, about how people consume our content. Um, uh, uh, we're in a process progressively um, of encouraging people to uh, register so we know who they are. And we believe we can do a great deal more to uh, deduce things about um, our users without any of the data having to leave our building at all. Um, We've we've begun to develop some advertising products which are based on first-party data. We're getting better at marketing tactics um, on platforms like Facebook, using Facebook as a paid marketing platform, where, again, we're we're using... Um, um, tactics which rely on first-party data rather than the, an than the, enormous exchange, open-ended exchange of data to to multiple third parties. So, so I would say the the in the jargon of, of GDPR, the, the the new European re- registration, the the idea of first party and indeed, as it were, the New York Times as a controller of people's data with responsibility for the data. Um, and using where we use third parties, using them as processors rather than having sharing control of people's data with other controllers, not least because it's become clear over the last 18 months that even the largest and best established uh, digital platforms themselves have not had particularly thought through or secure or responsible um, um, practices for handling their users' data, or indeed our users' data.
3: One final one. Hi, thanks for being here. Uh, you talked about making the, the subscriptions and everything a daily habit. You've certainly made me a daily, daily listener. Yeah. Um, what other new medias are you looking at to continue this habit driving?
4: So, so there's a lot going on, and it depends in a sense, you know, the famous funnel. It depends on which, kind of which bit of the funnel you're in, whether, whether you're someone who's coming to the Times the first time or, or you're an occasional user or more regular. For, for people who are ready to become more regular, um, the Daily has been a fabulous, fabulous evaluation tool. Actually, getting to the next <laughs> stage with things like um, uh, uh, our, our morning briefings, uh, which we've not done enough to keep to keep uh, innovating in yet, but we're, we're going to fix that. Um, getting better at breaking news is quite important. I mean, people come to us. We know this from, from from Google search results much more than they used to for breaking news, because as the brand, as a digital brand, has grown. People, we we can often go head-to-head and sometimes beat CNN, for example, specifically for breaking news, which is not a strong New York Times tradition. The Times is always known for end of the day, what does it mean, classic 800,000-word, you know, uh, uh, a summary uh, uh, of what happened, not literally something is happening now, what's happening. People want want both from us, and, and... this this is a, going to be a kind of separate operation for us, but we're we are literally now uh, just to, this week going into into beta uh, with our Android app. With a, so one one platform with uh, the beginnings of a solution to breaking news. Um, but at the level of occasional users, we need to a better better job on the let's say the mobile web story page. You come via social or via search for one story from the Times. We've got you. What next? What, what else do we put in front of you? How, do you? how do we get you from that one experience to the next experience? And it's amazing and kind in some ways slightly shocking that we haven't cracked that yet. But I would say not only have we not cracked it, we haven't even really gone at it systematically. So we're engaged in that as well.
3: We're, we're totally out of time. I'll, do, I'll give you a final yes or no. Do your subscriptions go down when President Trump is no longer the president?
4: No. Uh, 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 no, uh, the the, the, the we're, we're trying to help people understand a um, a confusing and in some ways frightening world. It's not always there's great things going on there as well, and and the the, the disruptions of today, everyone's here because of the disruptions. They're to business. Um, they're to, to our economy. They're geopolitical, the shift from east to west, uh, 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 America's loss of rel- relative strength in the world. They're social. They're about the genders and about how we think about diversity. They're about the climate. They're about automation and how people's jobs change. I would say US and the UK politics at the moment are symptoms of this painful, fragmentary, fascinating, terrifying process of change. That's our business, is the business of giving people tools and information to make up their own minds about what the hell is happening. That doesn't go away with any one politician.
3: Mark Thompson, thank you very much.
1: That was New York Times CEO Mark Thompson, interviewed by Sarah Eisen on stage at CNBC's Evolve conference in New York City in June 2019. I'm Tyler Matheson here in the studio with events team producer Krista Braun. It was a fascinating conversation and none more so than when he sort of talked about the New York Times as a kind of Netflix business model. In other words, you provide the content and people will come.
2: Right. Absolutely. I think that when the Times started valuing their content in that way and realizing that people aren't just buying a newspaper anymore. People want to be able to look on their computer. People want to be able to look on their phones. And if we provide really stellar content, people will pay for that, and they'll get it where they want to get it.
1: I have a digital subscription to the Times, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, and a print subscription. I probably spend more time consuming New York Times content on my phone than anywhere else.
2: I do too, 100%. And I'll find it too through their social media channels and come to different stories that way. And, but 100%, I read more on my phone than I do anywhere else.
1: And it's also interesting that uh, they've tried to staff up their newsroom to meet the demands of their digital customers. Uh, Thompson found, for example, that early in the morning, 7 a.m.-ish, is when they have the highest uh, consumption of news on the, the digital channel, on the phones and so forth. And so he ramped up to be ready for breaking news at that hour.
2: And my first introduction to how much The New York Times was doing behind the scenes to kind of build up their digital infrastructure was hearing their chief data and analytics officer talk about how much they've invested in learning when their readers and when their viewers are – Consuming certain content, what they're reading most frequently, and they've done a lot behind the scenes to really kind of ramp that up.
1: Krista, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Fantastic. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For more information about CNBC Events, including how you can join us, we'd love to have you there in person, visit CNBCEvents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening.
0: Justin, and so good.